Father, your presence once was horrendous to us because we want to hide from you. But because of our Lord Jesus Christ, your presence right now is sweet. And Father, we enjoy that you are with us every single moment. Father, the sick bed used to scare us when we think about illness and sickness. But when you are there with us, even the sick bed can become soft because it's where in our times of weakness we learn what it means to let you be strong, what it means to give strength to the Lord. The fiery furnace used to scare us because we are afraid of fire and because we love our skin and dare not want us to feel the flames of the trials amongst us. And we often pray, Lord, save us right now. But because of your presence, even the fiery furnace can be a time of blessing because we see you dancing with us in the flames. So, Father, we thank you for your presence. Your presence is what changes things. It's what changes our circumstances. So, Father, as we come right now to your word, this may be a boring time for some people, but because you are with us, because Jesus is with us, this is a powerful time because through your word we learn to see you, to savor your sweetness, to know what it means to be loved by the living Savior. So your presence will make a difference when we come to you. So Lord, we surrender these next few moments to you. May you be present amongst us so that we will learn and see and taste that the Lord God is good. In his son's name we pray. Amen. One of the most successful movies this year is The Joker. I have not personally seen the movie myself, but I've read enough reviews and uh, posts and synopsis of the movie. It's uh, the story about the Joker. The Joker is the arch nemesis of uh, Batman in the DC Comics. But it's not only just an arch enemy of Batman, the Joker was, was also a mass murderer. The movie seeks to understand the story of the Joker and how he grew to become such a notorious criminal. The Joker's real name is Arthur Flagg. Arthur works as a clown, and one time his friend loaned him a gun, and while Arthur is uh, entertaining children at a children's hospital as a clown, the gun falls out of his pocket. Immediately, Arthur is immediate, was immediately fired. And on the subway home, Still in his clown outfit, Arthur is being beaten up by three drunken businessmen. And in defense of himself, he shoots two of them, killing both of them immediately. And then he executed the last businessman. Things began to grow, go spiraling downhill for Arthur. His uh, comic routine begins to grow uh, poorly. His, uh, his, uh, his neurotic disorder 
makes him unable to control his own feelings. So when he delivers his jokes before the punchline, he would be laughing uh, before the punchline. So his boss, Murray Franklin, would often mock and make fun of Arthur. And just when you think that things will not get any worse, Arthur finds out that he's also the son, the illegitimate son of the city's richest businessman, Thomas Wayne. He finds out to his horror that his mother had an affair with this billionaire. And so at, this, at the public event, Arthur decides to confront Thomas Wayne, who tells Arthur that his mother, Penny, is disillusioned. And later in distraught, in shame and in anger, Arthur visits his mother at the hospital and takes a gun and kills his own mother, Penny. Arthur once again is invited back to Murray Franklin's show because of the popularity of his routine acts. And before he goes to on the show live, Arthur watches the clips whereby Murray Franklin would mock him and he would be fuming with anger as he watches the clips. So his time comes for him to appear on stage on the Murray Franklin show. And he gets on the stage. And when he gets on the stage, he publicly mocks uh, Murray and, and, uh, and tells morbid jokes. And then he confesses on the show that he killed the three men on the train. And he also tells of how this franchise is life uh, at the time was and how Murray used to mock him. And towards the end of the show, he takes a gun and he fires at his boss, Murray Franklin, live on television. And he's arrested immediately on the show and the whole city of Gotham turned into a riot. What the film is trying to teach us is that Arthur Flagg's life became, Arthur became the notorious joker because he was forced by his circumstances. He had an overdose of unfortunate events. His failing career, his mental health issues, his mother who gave birth to him out of an adulterous affair. He was beaten up, he was mocked and laughed at, he was derailed, he was literally treated as a joker. I mean, Arthur Flagg had an overdose of horrendous experiences. And what the show is trying to bring out is that Arthur became the joker because of a volley of bad circumstances. Arthur Flecht isn't alone, you see. There are many of us, some of us who are alcoholics because we come from an environment that forces us to be alcoholics because we have alcoholic parents. Some of us are very negative and very critical and judgmental in life because throughout our lives we've been forced by our circumstances to be negative because people criticize us and the, there are people who speak poorly about us. Some of us are misers and refuse to help people in need because we are forced by our circumstances. Because in our times of need, nobody gave us a helping hand. We have been overdosed by sin. And we say we can't help it 
but become a rotten sinner. My question for us this morning is this. Can we break this sinful chain of events? If you come from an alcoholic family, if you come from a family that is negative, if you come from experiences that have tarnished you, can you break those cycles? The good news, the bad news is that we can't. By our human strength, we can't. In, in, in a sense, the movie The Joker is right. We are victims of our circumstances. But with the gospel, and it's the good news, we can break this chain of sinful events. We need Jesus Christ. I want to look with you in Daniel chapter 4 this morning, how Jesus and the gospel that he brings breaks the cycle of sins. If you have been like Arthur Flight, you've gone through a volley of bad experiences of what sin looks like, the ugliness of sin, and you feel like you were a victim of those circumstances, that there is no way you can change and get out of the circumstances, I want you to listen to the gospel again in your life and your hearts you will open yourself as we look into this passage in daniel chapter 4. for those of you who have just joined us this morning we've been studying through the book of daniel and right now we're in daniel chapter 4. there are two ways in which this passage tries to teach us of how the gospel breaks the cycle of sin two ways number one how do we break the cycle of sin Number one, we need an overdose of God. We need an overdose of God. If an overdose of sinful events like adultery, murder, mockery, criticisms can turn Arthur Flagg into the Joker, what can an overdose of God do to us? The overdose of God can break the cycle of sin. Daniel chapter 4 is essentially a letter that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, tries to write for the entire world. Verses 1 and 2 spells out the purpose of this letter. It says, To the nations and the peoples of every language who live on the earth, may you prosper greatly. Verse 2, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. This letter was meant for the masses, was meant to be circulated to the nations, the peoples of every language. This is a message that is supposed to be sent to all these people so that the world will have an overdose of what God can do. And what is the message about? To tell the world that about the miraculous signs and wonders of the most high in verse 2. The phrase, the miraculous signs and wonders of the most high, is a phrase that often occurs in the Old Testament to refer to the miraculous events that God did when God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. The ten signs, the ten plagues that God did. So what is God saying here? God wants the world God wants there to be an overdose of the good news to that all the nations, all the peoples of the earth may be overdosed with this message that God has the power 
to deliver his people, just like how he delivered Israel out of Egypt, God can still do it again with his mighty acts. And God is really serious that the world should be to, to face an overdose of his mighty power. How do I know that? This is why God gives in Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, another dream. We are told three times in this chapter itself that the king receives this dream while he was lying in bed in his own palace. We see this phrase, lying in bed, three times, repeated three times in this chapter. In verse 5, in verse 10, and again in verse 13. Why does God tell us that when he gave the king this, this new dream, the king was lying in his bed? What's the significance of that? Well, if you understand a little bit about the historical background, you will understand. The greatness of King Nebuchadnezzar is his building press. Throughout his 44-year reign, King Nebuchadnezzar had one area of expertise, or many, but one of his greatest expertise was that he was a builder. The King Nebuchadnezzar not only built the hanging gardens of Babylon, but he also built the Ishtar Gate. If you go to the British Museum, I think it's still there, they made a replica of the Ishtar Gate that King Nebuchadnezzar built. It's a beautiful gate, an enormous gate made out of 10,000 big blue clay brick, blue glazed bricks. Uh, that's used to make this beautiful gate that's blue in color, but it also has pictures, images of animals and deities, all painted in gold, embroidered on this beautiful gate. The Ishtar Gate is the gate that opens up the city of Babylon, and there is, and uh, uh, it opens into the processional way that leads uh, from the beginning of the city into the heart of the city, where the temple and the palace of Babylon are. It's a beautiful gate, and the processional way in which the uh, the gate opens to is uh, is a beautiful. Uh, way in which there are statues of the gods and animals being erected along this processional way to give Babylon a, a, a grand and majestic feel as you enter the city. So King Nebuchadnezzar was a great builder, but there was also a time that the King Nebuchadnezzar also spent time building his own palace. His palace itself is a work of art. For two reasons. Firstly, King Nebuchadnezzar made a palace that was impenetrable. He used a special form of mud brick uh, that is so thick that no weapon could ever be fired onto uh, this palace and break open this palace. So he built an impenetrable palace. But secondly, what's remarkable about his palace is that he was the first king to ever invent air conditioning without the use of electricity. If you've ever been to Iraq, which is where ancient Babylon was, you will know that in the summertime or even throughout the year, Iraq is very, very hot, especially in the summer months. Temperatures can go over 50 degrees centigrade. It's just oven hot. 
So what the king did was that he was able to perfect the walls of the palace using this very special mud brick that the, his palace would still be cool, like air conditioning in the summer months. So this means that his palace was so uh, insulated that it was very difficult to get in. And, uh, and if the palace itself is very difficult to get in, his private room, the private room of the king, would be even more impossible to enter. But yet God tells us that when he gives the king the dream, God could penetrate right into the king's private bedroom. While the king was lying in his bed, God could still speak to him. God wants there to be an overdose of his power. And there is no place God would not go. God could even go into the impenetrable palace of the king and into his own private bedroom. And God spoke to the king while the king was lying in his bed. Three times we are told in this passage that God could enter into the most private areas of the king. What is God teaching us here? God is teaching us that God wants to, there to be an overdose of his presence and of his power. Why? That breaks the cycle of sin. Unless God is in every part of our lives, sin will rule. But how do we break the power of sin? We need an overdose of God. God needs to penetrate right into our bedrooms when we're alone, when no one sees. God still needs to be worshipped and celebrated. I was listening to an interview uh, between musician Keith Gatty and Pastor John Piper. John Piper grew up in a family where his father was a fundamentalist evangelist. And Keith Gatty asked John Piper if he, what was, he was growing up, ever felt a rebelling against his Christian heritage. And Piper simply said, no. Why? You see, when Piper and, and his sister were growing up, his family had an overdose of God. God was celebrated, talked about everywhere and in every season. His father would often tell them with story after story of gospel triumphs, of how the gospel made its way and how the gospel brought salvation to different people. His father made trusting in Jesus fun. He would tell them jokes so funny that, uh, uh, that Papa Piper and his uh, wife would cry and laughed with tears in their eyes over these jokes. And whenever the family would go out, out, go for an outing, Papa and Mama Piper would be singing gospel choruses at the top of their lungs. And they would be singing it so passionately, so loudly, so continuously that the whole car was just filled with praises from the Lord. And John Piper says during those times, he would look at his sister and he would say to his sister, they referring to their parents, really love Jesus. And precisely because there was such an overdose of God in their house, 
When it came time for John Piper to be a teenager, he never felt the urge to go partying, to consume drugs, because there was such so much beauty of God everywhere, such an overdose of the beauty of Jesus everywhere, that sin doesn't even have a place to stand in the Piper household. How do we break the curse of sin? Let there be an overdose of the glory and the presence of God and the power of God in every aspect of our lives, from your bedroom to your living room to when you go out. Let there be an overdose. Never compartmentalize our lives to what is public and what is private, to what is professional and what is personal. Don't do that. Let the glory of God flood over all these divides, push down all these walls. Let it be there, whether you're in a private situation, in the public arena. That's how sin gets broken, when the glory of God is overflowing. Secondly, how do we break the power of sin? We die to ourselves. We die to ourselves. We conquer sin by dying to ourselves. What was this dream about? The second dream in the book of Daniel that God showed King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look at what this dream is about. Let's look at verse 13 onwards. And the visions I saw while lying in bed. This is King Nebuchadnezzar talking while he was lying in bed. I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trimmed of its branches, stripped of its leaves and scattered its fruits. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound of iron and bronze remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times passed by for him. In this dream, King Nebuchadnezzar is being pictured as a tree in the middle of the land whose height is enormous. Okay, why a tree? Why is King Nebuchadnezzar here pictured as a tree? Why not a tar? Why not a lion? Why not a castle? Why a tree? You remember earlier on in Daniel chapter 2, which we looked at a few weeks ago, in chapter 2, especially verses 35 and 45, God promised that there will come a time when God will destroy the kingdoms of the earth. God will knock down the kingdoms of the earth. And God, what will God do? God will set up his kingdom. His kingdom will come by way of a mountain. He will set up his own mountain. We know that God's mountain, according to the book of Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 and 14, is where Eden is, where God's garden is. The, uh, the Garden of Eden is, according to Ezekiel, is situated on a mountain. So God is bringing back his Eden. God is establishing his new creation on earth. And here King Nebuchadnezzar pictures himself as the tree of life. 
But in, in, in God's new creation, in God's Eden, who is the tree of life? It's God himself. But here, King Nebuchadnezzar thinks of himself as God. He sees himself as the tree of life. A tree that is so great that according to verse 12 in chapter 4, that the wild animals find shelter, that the birds live in its branches, and where uh, every creature was being led. King Nebuchadnezzar saw himself as God. And what does God have to do? Cut down the tree. Cut King Nebuchadnezzar down. In order for God's kingdom to be established, all false gods need to be chopped and cut down. Many a times we think of ourselves as the tree of life too. We are the center of the world. This is why we get easily offended when people criticize us. Because we are the center of the world. If you speak evil of me, I get hurt. This is why we get hurt when people don't appreciate us. Because I am at the center of the world. If you don't say good things about me and tell me how beautiful I am, I'll get hurt because I'm the center of the world. This is our mentality. We are very much like King Nebuchadnezzar. We are the tree of life, the center of attention. This is why we get easily destroyed when our parents don't behave the way they need to behave. This is why we get hurt and, and, and feel unjust when we come from families that do not lift up to our own expectations. Why? Because we see ourselves as the center of the earth. We, like King Nebuchadnezzar, need to be cut down by God. And this is what the gospel is all about, isn't it? We cannot save ourselves. In order for us to come to Jesus, we need to die to ourselves. We need to surrender and say to Jesus, I need to decrease, you need to increase. And this is what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. He was being cut down and the dream comes true. The word God doesn't just give Nebuchadnezzar a dream and that was it. Verse 28 tells us that the king, the dream came true. So verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, just 12 months after the dream, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, which was supposed to be impenetrable, remember? But God could still get in. And the king said, is not this the magnificent Babylon which I have built on the royal capital of my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? While the words were still on the king's mouth, a voice from heaven came. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven away from human society and your dwelling will be that of the animals of the fields. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen. Seven times shall pass over you uh, until you have learned that the Most High was sovereign over the kingdoms of mortal and gives to it whom he will. Immediately, the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society, ate grass like an oxen, and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails became like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar thought of himself as a tree of life. But when he was least expecting it, God cut him down. 
God went into the impenetrable palace of the king and brought him down. That King Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind for a period of time. Archaeologists have discovered an ancient Babylonian cylinder that actually records and affirms what the Bible teaches. That towards the end of King Nebuchadnezzar's life, though he was a great king, though he did marvelous things for Babylon and though he was a powerful king, that towards the end of his life, he stopped worshipping the Babylonian god Marduk and did some very strange activities as if he has lost his mind, such as he turned against his own son, distrusted his son and did some very strange activity. Because God's word came true for the king. What does this have to do with us? How do we break the curse of sin? How do we, if you were like Arthur Fleck, when people mocked you, laughed at your failures, think that you are stupid, think that you are a joker, think that you are just the product of your mother's phonification, what do you do? We need to die to ourselves and say, my life is not mine. My life is yours, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to take our past hurts and nail them to the cross. Every time when these shameful events come back to haunt us, take them to the cross of Jesus Christ and put it there. We need the blood of Jesus Christ to uplift us, wash away our sinfulness. We need Jesus to bring us, lift us up of this mire, dirt of failures and redeem us. We need to die to ourselves. We need to rest in the very fact that my identity is not in my past. It's not what people say of me. My identity is not what happens even to me right now. My identity is not bound to my accomplishments or my lack of accomplishments. But my identity is bound in the very fact that Jesus loves me and saved me by dying on the cross for me. And that is enough. And that's why I am precious because I have been saved by Jesus Martin Lloyd-Jones was perhaps one of the most powerful preachers that England has ever produced. And for almost 30 years, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached at the Westminster Chapel in London. Towards the end of the doctor's life, he became ill. And it became very difficult for him to even get out of bed to his own chair. And friends would stop by just to encourage the doctor. Many would come and just for a visit, and, uh, but they will get very discouraged just seeing the doctor lying there. Once a mighty pastor, once a powerful preacher, now has become a vegetable. He couldn't even get out of bed. He couldn't even speak. And many of his visitors became very discouraged just looking at Martin Lord Jones themselves. And they would say to the pastor, to the doctor as he was called, Martin, you used to be this powerful preacher, a lion in the pulpit. Now look at yourself. You are so pitiful. You can't even make your own bed and climb out of your bed. How do you keep yourselves from being discouraged? Lord Jones will open his Bible and point to Luke chapter 10 verse 12. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subjected to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What is Martin Lloyd-Jones saying here? Don't rejoice. Don't rejoice over your accomplishments. Yes, you may be a powerful preacher. You may be a pastor of a big church. You may have done great things for the Lord. Yes, yes, yes. But that's not your identity. Your identity is in the glorious fact that your name is written in the book of heaven. That's what my Lord John says. The more you build your identity on yourself, the more you are going to get hurt when things don't go your way. But the more you build your identity on Jesus, the less you are going to get hurt. We artifact let his whole life be controlled by what by the things that happened to him and what people said to him. And he turned out to be a monster. Because he thought he was at the center of the world. What he needs is a savior to be the center of the world. What we need is a savior to be the center of our world. Lord, cut down the tree so that the tree of life can again be at the center of Eden and the center of our lives. Father, we come to you and we thank you, Lord God, for this powerful time we can come. Allow your Holy Spirit once again to speak to us. Father, we can send your Spirit moving in our church this morning, moving in our midst this morning. We pray, dear Father, that you will once again take central stage in our lives. That you will indeed increase in us, that our lives will decrease. Father, may our eyes again be fixed upon you. Yes, Lord, lead and guide. Lead and guide us. For those of us who are in the bondage of sin, and you feel that there is no way out, because you have been a victim of the things that are happening to you, that are unfair, filled with injustice and sin, Jesus can break that. There is no area in our lives that Jesus cannot penetrate. Let him in. Let him flood even the most private bedrooms of our souls. Let him be the king there. Forgive us, Lord God, when we privatize our lives into what is private and what is public. Lord, invade us this morning that there will be no inch in our hearts that's not occupied by you. Father, take control. May you be again the Lord and Savior of our lives and the gospel again dominate our hearts. In his son's name we pray.